1: Um, I hope you all have been out there voting or have sent in your ballots or plan to go later um, we it 's one of the things that we should be grateful for living in this country for those of you who are listening from america it 's our election day, and um obviously well, like pretty much every election day, there are some really important things to be decided now. Um, Today's show is going to be asking the question, how much influence do Islamist extremists have on our elections? I bet you maybe you haven't been thinking about that today, Um, or if you have, um, it's not necessarily in the way that my guest today is going to be talking about, because the answer to this question is, more than you'd imagine and we're going to be talking about two particular ways that they have been having an influence are still having an influence in the results as they come in today um and and uh, you know it's not if you've voted, you've voted, but this is an important um, this is important to know <laughs> regardless of where you are in your voting cycle um, because this is something that as i've been Saying for years now, for those of you who have been listening for years, um, this is not going away, and we need to be more and better prepared. My guest today um, is Ryan Moreau and he uh, has—he is the—he has lots of um, uh, uh, awards or lots of uh, ways that I could introduce him, um, and I will. But I think the probably one of the uh, biggest um, or most admirable uh, kinds of uh, definitions of who you are, Ryan, is that in June 2012, the Muslim Brotherhood's official English-language Twitter page sent out a tweet calling him delusional and a scaremonger. <laughs> I like <laughs> that the best. <laughs> yeah, that means like you're I on the to. right track. What did you yeah. start to say?
2: I said, yeah, I like that one, too.
1: Yes. (laughs) Uh, Ryan is also the National Security Analyst for ClarionProject.org. He'll tell you what that is. And one of the things that that does is that it produces hit films such as Obsession, The Third Jihad, Iranium, and Honor Diaries. He's also a frequent analyst on uh, television and radio, including Fox and other media outlets. Um, He has been widely published uh, for his analysis and research. And um, all in all, Ryan has been um, involved in um, political issues uh, since he was 16. So why don't we start with that? I mean, that's how I always like to have my guests... Um, talk about how they got into whatever it is that they either have written a book about, or you know, are involved in an organization about. Um, how this this particular topic got to be near and dear to your heart. So I guess does it go back as far as sixteen?
2: Uh, actually, earlier than that is when I first started studying this stuff. Um, it was largely because I couldn't play sports when I was little due to a visual disability I have. And young boys, that that's all they do. Uh, so uh, that led to a lot of free time on my hand, uh, focused on research, um, and writing and just developing those skills by playing on the computer. Uh, that started when I was around probably age 11, maybe, maybe a year before that. And, um, then I eventually basically triggered an obsession. Um, I have some OCD features that kicked in, <laughs> and uh, I uh, compile thousands of notes on all of this stuff. I went to every conceivable website, every conceivable source, and uh, through a, a series of really remarkable coincidences, I met the right person at the right time when I was 16 who was forming a maritime security company, and he hired me part-time to do analysis and research for, the, for him. Uh, and then once that got on my resume um it was uh, it, it just led from one thing to another yeah. and so i'm do, doing what i'm doing now, which is uh, I'm the national security analyst for the Clarion Project, which is a nonprofit educational group all about Islamic extremism in the u s and around the world
1: and and okay, and did you did and the Clarion project began in two thousand
2: I'm Go not ahead. sure the exact year. I would say, I mean, I guess around 2006 or something like that, um, because I joined them after they were founded. I've been working for for them for the past three years.
1: Uh-huh.
2: Um, but, but the different films that we put out uh, were Obsession, The Third Jihad, Iranium, and then we were part of a coalition that put out a movie called Honor Diaries recently that's all about the struggle for women's rights in the Muslim world.
1: Well, that's that's really um fabulous really important stuff so and i and now i can see how because for example um in what we're going to be talking about today you know or your what you wrote um is so <laughs> is so um painstakingly <laughs> um, detailed. You know, it's amazing. So I, I get it now that, that, that this all started back way back when. It's a good thing you didn't go into video games instead.
2: <laughs> oh, I did. So, b- <laughs> believe me, I made time for that.
1: Okay. All right. So let's talk about, I mean, so, the, so we're going to be um, revealing, talking about how, how much, because I don't really think when people voted that they were thinking about this. Um, whether it was you know at home in the comfort of their own home with their ballots or going to the vote polling place, I, I honestly don't think that the first thing on their mind was how is my how am I being influenced today by uh, Islamist extremists. In fact, I, I think probably most people would say, "Oh, what does that have to do with anything?" <laughs>
2: Right. Well, what an Islamist extremist is, it's not your typical Muslim that just practices their faith. An Islamist is a Muslim that turns their faith into a political doctrine. Uh, so the Muslim Brotherhood is the best example of this, which is an international movement that combines their faith with the state and they want to implement what's called Sharia law around the world. And we've always known that foreign governments and foreign movements do try to influence our politics here. The Founding Fathers warned about that right from the beginning. So it's not surprising that the Muslim Brotherhood would do the same thing. Mm. So in the 1960s, they started setting up front organizations, obviously not going by the name of the Muslim Brotherhood because that would make their whole effort worthless. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they started trying to influence our policies, our media, uh, much like other special interests do. Um, so, it's not, so what they're doing is not much out of the ordinary, um, but with today's elections, I wanted to really focus in on some of the tactics that the Muslim Brotherhood Network in the U.S. and other Islamists in the U.S. use. Mm-hmm. Um, on the one hand, the most obvious and I think the most powerful element of their strategy is just bashing a candidate or someone they don't like as an Islamophobe, someone who just hates Muslims. So if you criticize them or you criticize Islam, or you oppose their agenda in some way, oh, well, you're an anti-Muslim bigot. And then you have, you spend uh, the next several news cycles trying to defend yourself. That's one way they influence uh, politics. Another way is by helping other candidates without actually endorsing them. They may feature them at a fundraiser, or they may issue out a statement saying, we really appreciate what this politician is doing. Um, and so it's not quite to the level of an endorsement. They don't want to get themselves in trouble. But it has all the features of an endorsement. And the lesser-known element is financial support. And this is what I wrote about at clarionproject.org the other day. Uh, A new database has been created called the Islamist Money in Politics website. And what they found is that Islamists from just five groups, so it's a limited survey, just five groups, have given $700,000 to federal candidates over the past 15 years, Including about eighty-five thousand dollars to presidential campaigns from both political parties, and they do this in order to gain access and influence their stances on issues.
1: Now, I want to I want to um, add something here because that number, as you write about, um, is really a, you call it a shadow of the true numbers because the the research, the figures have not yet be, been compiled for state campaigns and for um, and every Islamist, uh, radical Islamist organization. So, that's, so the number is probably a lot higher than that.
2: Oh, without a doubt, because what this survey did was it just covered the senior officials, known officials of five groups. It doesn't include mid-level officials or lower officials. It doesn't include all the Islamist groups or in- independent Islamist activists that share the same ideology. And often, if a senior official comes in and, let's say he only donates $500 to a campaign, but he introduces to the campaign some other millionaire that donates, say, $20,000, mm. mm. well, that friend of the Islamist won't be in the database because he's not an official Islamist with an organization. So this really is just the tip of the iceberg.
1: Mm-hmm. So tell us about some of the uh, examples, like the... The the uh, candidates who have gotten the most money.
2: Well, over the years, the presidential campaigns is obviously the most focused um, effort because they influence foreign policy. So, in the two thousand cycle, they very heavily favored the Bush campaign by far. In two thousand four, more of them favored Ralph Nader, and then to a lesser degree, John Kerry, and they wanted nothing to do with.
1: Wait a second! Wait, I'm confused. You're saying these Islamist extremist organizations gave more money to Bush?
2: In the 2000 cycle, yes, they did by far.
1: But, okay, why would that be since he was the tougher of the candidates in terms of trying to combat terrorism?
2: They were unhappy with the Clinton administration, and the Bush campaign, before he actually became president in 2000, was talking about a more humble foreign policy. They did aggressive uh, reaching out to the Muslim community through the, these Islamists. The Islamists had very close ties to the campaign. Some of them even ended up in jail or investigated by the FBI later. Uh, so they had close ties to the Bush campaign. Uh, Bush, for example, promised to change uh, certain immigration procedures for counterterrorism, so that the relative of a prominent Islamist wouldn't be detained anymore. Uh, they, they were basically trying to win over the Islamists in 2000, um, and then the relationship broke after 9/11, and Bush did a, a lot of things that the Islamists didn't like.
1: Well, that's that's really fascinating because I mean, and it's really ironic that. Um you know, thinking that this was going to turn out to be good for them. Okay. I mean, of course, um, the Clintons were more friendly to Israel. um, Well, not necessarily than Bush, but, I mean, I guess friendly in general. That might be one of the things that they didn't like. Um, But, uh, but, boy, that certainly changed with 9-11. Okay, go ahead. (laughs)
2: And if if you're interested in that, go to the article down to the section about the 2000 cycle. and We link to another article I wrote all about the relationship between the Islamists and the Bush campaign and the Bush administration, how that relationship was built, and then it later unraveled uh, in great detail. Uh In in 2004, uh, the Islamists favored Ralph Nader um, and then favored John Kerry over George Bush, and then ever since then, they heavily favored Barack Obama.
1: Yes. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> yes, I and mean, I, I don't think uh, i don't think that's a surprise. <laughs> All right, we do need to take a break. Um, we're we're beginning to get into this and and uh, the influence that Islamist extremists have on our elections, and we're going to be talking more about this with my guest Ryan Morrow. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
4: The Dr. Pat Show with Dr. Pat Basili is a radio forum for some of the world's most influential people in the fields of health, wellness, and human potential. Dr. Pat brings together and introduces visionary scientists and futurists, environmentalists, educators, business leaders, inventors, filmmakers, authors, artists, mystics, and healers who inspire and support individual and collective growth and positive cultural shifts. This award-winning radio show empowers the listening community to be the change they want to see in the world. Tune in every Thursday at 8 a.m. Pacific for the Dr. Pat show with Dr. Papciilli radio to thrive by
3: listen for MD radio on the Voice America Variety channel that's Muscular development radio. Every Monday, your host, Sean Ray, will take you inside the world of bodybuilding and health and fitness. The show will feature Hall of Fame bodybuilders, trainers, judges, and the future champions of tomorrow. Plus, you'll be invited to participate in our call-in Ask the Pros feature. And our nutritional spotlight will feature products that can help you achieve your fitness goals. MD Radio is broadcast live Mondays at 7 p.m. Eastern, 4 Pacific, on the Voice America Variety Channel stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time, the number 1 internet talk station where your opinion counts.
4: Voiceamerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show, here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. Talking with you today about on election day, the elections. How much influence do Islamist extremists have on our elections? And we're uh, just starting, opening the uh, opening the door to this. My guest is Ryan Morrow. Um, he is the um, national security analyst for the Clarion Project, and we'll tell you, we'll give you, tell you more about how to what they're doing and how to get to them, and so on, um, at the end of the show. Um, but before the break, we were talking about all the different campaign contributions that Islamist extremists have made, uh, even though so far it's really only, studies have only been able to uncover the tip of the iceberg, because it is so hard to uh, to get to all of the contributions. Um, but, so, we were starting to talk about, you know, who they contributed to most. Um, and what about this year? What, well, um... Who are the candidates, the Republican and the Democratic candidates, who are getting, um, who have gotten the most campaign contributions?
2: Uh, On the presidential level, we obviously don't know yet because the campaigns haven't begun. Um, But on the congressional level, um, what we know is that nine Democrats have gotten Islamist financial support as well as two Republicans. Uh, Interestingly enough, in the Senate race in Michigan, both sides, both the Democrat and the Republican, got Islamist money. So no matter who wins there, the Islamists win. They, they really huh. did their best. Uh, but the two Republicans uh, that are, have gotten his, Islamist financial support um, is Terry Lynn Land, like I said, running for Senate in Michigan, um, and then Pat Roberts, uh, Senator Pat Roberts of Kansas, who is running against independent Greg Orman. He got $250 from a donor linked to care. And again, the, the numbers aren't really so much what's important. What What is important is that that shows that's who the Islamists favor, and it likely leads to some type of connection with the campaign, and it, there's probably a lot more from where that came from.
1: I mean, you know, what's interesting is that, I mean, we've known about and talked about um, special interest groups funding politicians um, forever, uh, but it really is sort of, when you start thinking about it in terms of Islamist extremists, um, it almost seems, you know, you kind of have to scratch your head and wonder, how is this possible? I mean, how have we gotten this far? Well, I guess from what you were saying at the beginning, you know, that this isn't from yesterday. And that, of course, is one of the scariest parts of this whole situation, that it has been since the 1960s, and it has been creeping slowly. But, you know, it's one thing for... Um, oh, let's say an oil company <laughs> or, uh, I don't know, some big polluter or something to um, give a lot of money to a, to a candidate because they have financial interests at heart. Um, but it's another thing when, you know, taking over the country is really what they have at heart.
2: <laughs> right. And, and, well, the reason that this happened is because, number one, they don't publicly talk about instituting Sharia in America. Um, sometimes they've slipped up and we've documented that, uh, but other times they imply it very subtly or they try not to talk about it. So what they do is they condemn groups like al-Qaeda and ISIS. Uh, they'll condemn their tactics, but they won't condemn their goals because they have the same goals. So they'll condemn 9-11, um, but the driving force behind 9-11 is something that they will embrace. So a lot of politicians look at these individuals and they say, look, this is a powerful group with a lot of money. They can deliver Muslim votes for me, they can uh, influence media coverage of me, and they're moderate. They look like moderates compared to Al-Qaeda, and they don't research the backgrounds of these activists and these organizations to find out that they have links to the Muslim Brotherhood, or that they've defended Hamas, or that they've done any other egregious things. Mm-hmm.
1: Mm-hmm. Um, yes. Um so much is, and the fronts, of course, that these groups, I mean, CARE is probably the best example of that, the Council on American Islamic Relations, as far as keeping up this front of being um, so harmless and, and moderate and so on. And really, that's their, their agenda is much deeper than that, much uh, more malignant than that.
2: that. That's right. So the five groups profiled all have Muslim Brotherhood origin. Uh, We know that from government documents um, and even terrorism trials. The one that you mentioned, the Council on American-Islamic Relations, that was formed in 1993 as a Muslim Brotherhood operation to help Hamas covertly. They are basically the loudmouths of the group. They're the ones that are the most aggressive and sliming people as saying that you're an anti-Muslim bigot. If you do something that they don't like, they really go after you. And they've had uh, many officials, I think about a dozen, either arrested, prosecuted, deported, or under investigation on terrorism and criminal charges. Um, the, the Muslim Alliance in North America is led by a radical anti-American cleric in New York named Siraj Wahaj, who's been under investigation by the NYPD. And they had an official who was essentially a terrorist killed in Michigan in a shootout with the FBI. So we're, talk- we're talking about groups that aren't really in the gray zone like they pretend to be, if you look at the documentation of their activities and what their officials have been involved in, it's horrible. It's one part of the radical Islamic pie, but because we're so focused on illegal activity Mm. and al-Qaeda and ISIS, these guys are able to get in under the radar.
1: Mm. Mm -hmm. Um, Talk about the Democrats that are in the current race that are being... Um, that have received money from Islamist extremists?
2: Sure. The most prominent one is Congressman Keith Ellison of Minnesota, who is a practicing Muslim and nothing inherently wrong with that. But over the course of his campaigns, he's gotten about $130,000 from these Islamist groups. He's definitely going to be reelected. Congressman Andre Carson of Indiana has gotten about $34,000. He's another uh, practicing Muslim, so... Uh, activists just naturally uh, feel more affinity for him because of that. And the third uh, one that's the most prominent, and I can go the, go through the rest of them, uh, but this one's really big, is Congressman Jerry Connolly of Virginia. Um, he's gotten about $5,500 since 2008, and he's one of the most vocal supporters of the Muslim Brotherhood overtly. Not just their front groups. I mean, he actually talks well of the Muslim Brotherhood overseas and says that the U.S. has been too hard on them, Mm -hmm. even though, in my opinion, we haven't even been nearly hard enough on them. Mm
1: -hmm, mm Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You know, uh, going back to to Keith Ellison, um, he was the one who, when he was sworn in, um, uh, took his oath on a Koran.
2: Right, and you, you know that? what, that particular, I do remember that, and that particular incident didn't really bother me, uh, because if you're a Muslim serving, there's nothing wrong with Muslim serving in office, I would want you to swear your oath on the holy book that you feel most loyal to. Uh, so a, a similar example would be, I'm a Christian, and so if you had me go up and swear an oath on the Quran or some other text that I don't believe in, how meaningful is that? So that particular incident didn't really bother me, but some of his activity and how he's gone after Muslim critics of these organizations, uh, how he's shouted Islamophobia, how one of these organizations paid for his pilgrimage to Saudi Arabia, that does disturb me.
1: Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, of course, the Quran is such a... I mean, the problem is, of course, for moderate Muslims and for, well, for people who aren't Islamist extremists, um, yes, you know, it's, it's um, their book, it's their religion and so on, but... But the problem is that there are things, um, there are things, you know, Americans, most Americans have not read the Koran. And um, certainly there are, uh, I guess, scholars or researchers or um, people who have pointed out, things in the Quran, and yes, I guess it depends upon which version you're looking at and so on, but the talk about, um, you know, that non-believers are supposed to be smitten, for example.
0: Mm.
2: Right. So, Islamist extremists are logically interpreting their faith, and historically it has been interpreted in a very aggressive fashion. But most Muslims, especially in the U.S., have different interpretations. Ones that they've come up with on their own, either saying, well, those verses were mistranslated or the context means that they shouldn't be applied in the future or today ever again. And those alternative interpretations is definitely something we want to encourage uh, because it's just not a realistic policy to say, well, we want 1.5 billion Muslims to abandon their faith. And so right. you have these different interpretations battling it out in the marketplace of ideas, and organizations like CARE that we've been talking about have the more traditional Uh, interpretation that lends itself to a lot of the aggression that you're seeing and a lot of the human rights abuses.
1: Yes, yes. Um, All right. Well, are there any... um were there any other, um, I mean, if, if, you, if you've kind of hit the highlights of the campaign contributions, why don't we go to the other, the second aspect uh, in which our elections are being influenced uh, by Islamist extremists, the fact that um, the denial of terrorism, I'll call it. So go ahead. I'm talking about sure. the buildings, you know, what we've seen as far as the security being beefed up, but not us not being told why and that kind of thing.
2: So well, there's a few different things going on that way. You have the more, mil- the more militant terrorist Islamists like ISIS and al-Qaeda that are threatening the American homeland uh, that we all know about. And that's separate from these groups we talked about, but they have a very similar ideology, so they fuel each other. And they influence uh, American politics just by causing a scene and trying to intimidate us, uh, trying to trigger security alerts that are expensive and cause cause us to be fearful and want to withdraw from the world completely. Uh, The other element that's going on is the groups that we did talk about are all united in trying to cleanse our vocabulary so that the ideology of radical Islam is not part of the political discussion. So CARE is out there saying, well, you can't say radical Muslim because that's bigoted, so you need to delete that from the vocabulary. They told the Associated Press that you need to basically delete Uh, the word Islamist from your vocabulary, and the media shouldn't use it either, because that's racist and bigoted. And the objective behind all of this is to escape scrutiny of the ideology that binds together these organizations, the Muslim Brotherhood, ISIS, uh, all into a single pool. But it's necessary that we call that out. Otherwise, we're never going to understand uh, what's driving all of this. Yes. Yeah, so, go ahead. you know, And that's how you separate friend from foe, because we're not calling for stigmatizing or a war on an entire religion of 1.5 billion. There are Islamist Muslims who have an interpretation that is fundamentally incompatible with our values and is fundamentally anti-American. And then you have Muslims that have a more modern reformist interpretation, and they're very much an asset. So how do you separate them? You have to use the term Islamism Uh, Which is used overseas uh, every day, and no one shouts says Mm. it's bigoted in Mm. order to define who's friend and foe. Uh
1: huh. Ah, and here, (laughs) perfect time to take a break. Okay, we'll be back with uh, (laughs) discerning friends and foes, and how this is affecting our election today. Um, Right after the break, you're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch. My guest is Ryan Morrow. He is the uh, National Security Analyst for the Clarion Project. So stay tuned. You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch, and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
4: if you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol dial toll-free at 1-866-472-5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's couch. I'm your psychiatrist host Dr. Carol Lieberman talking with you today about the elections, how much influence do Islamist extremists have on our elections today? And today and tomorrow, and, and uh, it looks if, if things keep going this way, it looks like they're going to have more uh, influence in the future, unless we all wake up, stop smelling our, <laughs> well, we can smell our Starbucks coffee, but we have to do more than that. We have to wake up and, and realize what's going on in this country and put a stop to it. Um, my guest is Ryan Morrow. He is... The National Security Analyst for the Clarion Project, we've been talking about, well, we were talking about, you know, one of the uh, clearest ways, although it isn't so clear to get the exact amounts and who's donating what, but of course, you know, one way to influence elections is to contribute to the campaign of the person you want elected. But now we're talking about something that's a little more sinister so uh, and elusive. (laughs) So, Ryan, why don't you take it from here?
2: Sure. Uh, in regards to actual terrorist attacks, up to now we were talking about nonviolent Islamist tactics, but we obviously know that there are those that do engage in violence and terrorism. And the best example of really how the Obama administration is trying to struggle reality and politics comes with this security alert um, that went out telling uh, officials to beef up their security at federal buildings. The reason that happened is because there were three ISIS-inspired attacks in Canada and the U.S. over the course of about a week. Altogether, there have been four uh, Islamist acts of violence on American soil this year, which I think would qualify as terrorist attacks. And the could media you just, doesn't string them all together, so nobody knows about that.
1: Could you, could um, you um, just remind us or tell us of... I mean, of course we know about the one in Canada. Well, there were two in Canada. Are you counting them... Both of them. The one, um, there was the first one that was kind of quiet, and then the second one where the man, uh, where the terrorist shot the man who was guarding um, the war monument and, went and got into Parliament.
2: Right. The, okay, so the three attacks that happened in North America over less than a week uh, first began with a, a terrorist getting in his car, running over two Canadian soldiers, killing one of them, and then being shot and killed. The second attack happened in Canada when a terrorist went on a shooting rampage at the Canadian War Memorial, killed a soldier, then went over to the Parliamentary Building and was shot and killed there. And the third attack in October was when that terrorist picked up an axe and he went after two NYPD officers and thankfully was killed before he could kill them. Um, But the four attacks that happened in America over the course of this year began with a terrorist trying to burn down a gay club in Seattle on New Year's Eve, New Year's Day. The second attack was a shooting spree by a terrorist in Washington State and New Jersey that killed four people. He said it was an act of jihad, got virtually no media coverage. The third attack was when an ISIS supporter beheaded a woman in Oklahoma City. And then the fourth attack is the one that I just mentioned, where a terrorist picked up an act and attacked NYPD officers.
1: Yes, and you you know, I actually talked about the beheading in Oklahoma on the show a couple of weeks back, and I'm talking about how that's been called a workplace, or a workplace violent, or a workplace accident, um, as opposed to terrorism, you know, obvious terrorism. Um, And so this goes into what you were starting to talk about, which is how the media, and the government um, is not calling a spade a spade. It's not really um, acknowledging that these things are terrorist acts, even though we don't usually have beheadings in the workplace or haven't had up to now.
2: (laughs) That's right. And we, we tend to get bogged down in these questions of, oh, was it workplace violence or terrorism? Or was it hate crime or was it terrorism? Or was it arson or was it terrorism? And that's a, a gigantic waste of time, because whatever you classify it as, it's all part of a, a jihad. So in the, in the case of the beheading in Oklahoma City, yes, the guy was fired, he wanted to take revenge on his place of employment, but it was clear from his Facebook that he believed that he was commanded to carry out beheadings, and he ultimately would have engaged in a violent terrorist attack anyway. And so if you're going to engage in a violent jihad, why not make it against someone that you're mad at? Why not make it also an act of revenge?
1: Yes, and also he had been trying to convince um, his co-workers to um, believe in, in jihad or to believe in what he believed in, um, and that wasn't going over too well, which, which actually was part of the reason why he was fired, um, because he was harassing his co-workers, um, but so go ahead continue and the same thing with you know like the the uh, in canada the man who ran down um the two soldiers you know i mean you, you could say it was a car accident but these things um, or the man who took the axe to the police i mean you could say you know it was just a crazy man who wanted to kill police or wanted to have suicide by a cop or something but i mean there really is a a similarity i mean you can't the the media and of course politicians or at least some of the politicians I and mean that's where we're going to explain how this is influencing the election but don't want us to wake up and realize that these things are that more and more terrorist attacks are occurring
2: right and that was the the subtle message essentially by this alert to increase security at federal building because up to now the Department of Homeland Security didn't want to issue an alert unless it was based on specific intelligence about a specific plot because otherwise you're always sending out these alerts. They're generic. People stop paying attention to them. I understand the logic of that, but then they broke that after these three attacks happened in October because they recognized that we have entered a new, more dangerous period, that the trends showed that this was getting worse, and if there was an attack and they didn't go on alert after these three attacks, there would have been political blowback. That would have been just terrible for the Department of Homeland Security and especially terrible for the Obama administration. So what Mm -hmm. they didn't want to say in issuing that alert was the threat of terrorism is increasing, we're entering a more dangerous period, and that's why we need to send out this alert. Because if they said that, then every Republican person that's campaigning would be turning that into political ads against the administration.
1: In that the administration isn't doing enough Uh, to protect us from terrorism.
2: Right. It it would have, if they made that admission that the threat was getting worse after President Obama said the threat from Al-Qaeda is receding and we're getting safer, then every Republican, rightly or wrongly, would turn that into a political ad and would use it to just beat them over the head. So that's why the Department of Homeland Security didn't really explain this alert. They just put out the alert and they didn't want to frankly admit what caused it, which is that the, the trend is getting worse. And the number of terrorist incidents is increasing.
4: Oh,
2: and well,
1: you know, you put it in terms of that the, the Republicans would make hay out of it, as well they would, and as well they should. I mean, really, the problem is, I mean, it's the the deceit is really on the side of Obama, um, and he didn't want to people to recognize how badly he's. Handled the whole, (laughs) what war on terrorism, you know, um, because he doesn't want Democrats to, um, as you were saying, doesn't want Democrats to be, I mean, even if the Republicans said nothing, and it was just reported in the media that these acts were terrorist acts, and yes, we are concerned about the increase in terrorism and the increase in domestic terrorists and all of that, um, it would and should point to the failure of this administration to take terrorism seriously enough.
2: Sure. I think the Obama administration has done a good job in fighting al-Qaeda. I think that the strategy against ISIS is showing some results, and I'm critical of the strategy, but I think it's mostly pretty good. Um, I, guess we, I guess we disagree
1: it, on this. Okay. Well, what's wrong with it? <laughs> well, for starters, when I remember a month or two ago when... Um, there was, uh, Obama made a speech, and he said we didn't have a strategy to uh, to deal with ISIS. And then, of course, right, he backpedaled, and, and a and week later, or it. sometime later, he came up and he said, oh, well, we do have a... St-. I mean, it was ridiculous. He was laughed at all over the world, as well he should have been.
2: Yeah, that was... I mean, that incident was obviously a, a terrible mistake. They, it, it's fine to criticize him for, but when it comes to the strategy against ISIS itself, as declared, it's very similar to the strategy that I recommended beforehand. It's not perfect. There's some errors in there and some weak points, but overall, it is working against ISIS, and it's only been in place since September 10.
1: Well, I, 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 you know, I'm not so sure about that. But I'm talking about sort of a general attitude that the administration has had towards terrorism from the beginning. Um, which it was not as strong as it should have been and should be, uh, and so so I mean even today, well tell, why don 't you go into some of the statistics that you write about as far as the increase in terrorism because even today these these things are not um, broadly known, so even today there 's some uh, hiding going on of this, some some intent to deceive. Tell us about the the statistics that you 've uh, right, written about?
2: Sure. There's a few different dynamics going on. On the one hand, uh, the Obama administration's drone strikes on Al-Qaeda in Pakistan, which were increased 300% uh, as soon as he came into office, were very effective. But the numbers of individual terrorists and terrorist groups and attacks is still uh, increasing, especially recently. So since 2010, according to a study out there, Al-Qaeda-type jihadists uh, has tripled in number, um, and the or no, the number of individual Al Qaeda type terrorists has doubled, whereas the number of attacks by these groups has tripled. Uh, the number of individual Al Qaeda type groups has doubled since 9/11, uh, and that's largely because even though we're smashing the organization's capabilities, the ideology itself is still spreading. Uh, and until we focus on the Islamist ideology as a whole, which we aren't, we're focusing on individual groups you're going to have groups like this and terrorists like this continue to manifest themselves because you're not discrediting the thought process.
1: Okay, and, and part of the problem of discrediting the thought process is that our country is so politically correct. I mean, we're, we're going to be dying by political correctness. I, I've talked about that, both in terms of Ebola and terrorism. Um, you know, it's, it's, we're so concerned about about going bending over backwards to be politically correct, that we're we're just um, giving making more of a threat to ourselves, allowing more of more encroachment of threats from terrorism to Ebola to come to our shores. I mean, for example, you know the the connection with Ebola is not putting a, a ban on people coming into the states um, from from West Africa, or at the very least having. Um, more people, I mean, now they're kind of trying to scramble and fix it up by having some, uh, some quarantine for 21 days but even that's, you know, sort of come as catch can, I mean, it's not really being done very well. Anyway, we need to take another break <laughs> You're listening to Dr. Carol's Couch I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman, my guest is Ryan Morrow We will be back by how Islamic extremists are impacting our election today, so stay tuned
0: And if you're having trouble with relationships, check out her book, Bad Boys. Dr. Carol wants to help you today, so contact her at www.drcarol.com or for immediate help at 1-900-860-COPE. Get help making sense of these troubled times, www.drcarol.com.
3: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk
4: station. VoiceAmerica.com. Welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. If you have a question or comment for Dr. Carol, dial toll free at 1 866 472 5788. Now back to the show. Here's Dr. Carol Lieberman.
1: And welcome back to Dr. Carol's Couch. I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman. My guest today is Ryan Morrow. We're talking about how today's elections are being influenced by Islamist extremists. who are talking about um, contributing, they're contributing to their favorite candidates. And now we've been talking about how the uh, administration has been um, very careful to not uh, make it clear just how much in danger we are um how much the acts of terrorism have increased and so on because of this at, at least particularly or especially before the election so that people would um wouldn't be more likely to vote against the administration you know thinking that they weren't doing a great job on protecting us from terrorism which if you've been listening to this show for enough enough um shows you'll you know that I'm very much against um, what this administration, well, the lack of this administration doing anything or doing much to protect us against terrorism. So, so, um, and we were talking about this in regard to the recent um, alert or, the well, the recent beefing up of, of government buildings because of uh, more recent attacks. Um, you know, it, it's interesting also, it's not just the, I mean, of course, it's, it's, um, The problem, the the increasingly scary problem is the fact that it's not just um, terrorists from other countries infiltrating America, which of course is a major problem, and of course that relates to the immigration problem, you know, that there isn't enough control over immigration, but it's also um, a more insidious problem, which is that the homegrown terrorists, the people who are growing up in America... um, from, you know, without, uh, uh, with with parents who grew up in America, um, but who have gotten disenfranchised, feel disenfranchised, and feel as though there's no way that they're going to be able to reach the American dream for themselves. And then some of these people end up in jail for, you know, petty crimes or more serious crimes, and then in jail, um, of course, the jails are hotbeds um, of... <laughs> uh are little madrasas or what would you say madrasa <laughs> in in jails uh in fact that was what happened with the man who beheaded the woman in oklahoma he had been in jail for some petty crimes and um and learned about um to uh, to become an extremist islamist extremist from what he was taught by the other prisoners in jail so this and and compare that to the three teenage girls who, which is, I think, uh, Ryan, you know, I'd love to know what you think about this story. I, I think it is, it's, it's very scary, and it's very sad, and um, there's, it's not going to be the last time that we hear such a thing, but, but uh, where were those parents, you know, how did the parents not know that, um, not only that they stole $2,000 or so, but that this was their intent To, um, I mean, they gave them, from what I've read about it and heard about it, it seems like the the girls gave their parents a very wishy-washy story, and yet the parents somehow um, missed uh, realizing what's going on, and the the girls got on the plane, and they landed in Germany, and fortunately, you know, they were stopped there. but, um, But, I mean, it's like nobody was home.
2: Right, well what happened there is that the girls skipped school and then they got on a plane and then when the parents realized that they were gone and they took this money and a passport with them, they immediately called the FBI. So the parents did take action. Why well, they didn't know what the girls were doing. Um, it could just be as simple as they didn't have the girls' Facebook password. You know, if they were doing it all, you know, online communication, it's possible to hide that from your parents um, oh. and then the parents can't detect it. Well, uh, which is okay, right? but...
1: but. You know, it's not like these girls woke up one day and had this idea and did it, like, you know, all in just a few days. I mean, there were obviously problems in those homes, problems in the family for the girls to even think about doing such a thing. So even Actually, pe- it, it, ahead,
2: if you what? look at case studies of terrorists, most of the time they don't have family problems. Uh, Most of the time, fellow family members even share their extremism. We have no evidence that the parents did, but I think it's certainly conceivable that these girls, at least one of them was radicalized online, perhaps was talking to a guy from ISIS online, which... Uh, has been a main recruiting tactic for them. A lot of the time they recruit girls by making the girls fall in love with them. Well, yes, and that
1: was obviously it. Um, you know, and, and they're teen girls, that's the strongest uh, lore that you can have for them. You have uh, a, uh, an attractive um, guy from ISIS or, you know, some terrorist organization uh, making them feel special, making them feel as though, you know, they, they're in love with them, and they'd go to the ends of the earth. Too, because you know, presumably they weren't having um, they weren't having that uh, that kind of attention from um, from boys and at home, and they weren't having that kind of attention from their father. A girl doesn't normally do that kind of thing, even if the terrorist is cute. Um, if the, she's coming from a home where um, she's getting enough. Uh, love and attention, especially fatherly attention, and so on. I mean, it's not every girl who's going to fly, you know, just meet somebody online and the next day fly there.
2: Well, the the radicalization process happens extremely quickly. Uh, So my guess is, and this is speculation at this point because all the documents are sealed, is that she had a Muslim background, felt uh, isolated from her peers, didn't really absorb into American culture, um, and then, and met an ISIS guy online. Um, perhaps felt that she was falling in love with him, and then you know brought brought her friends along. Uh, that's the mo- based on what we've seen in the past. That's the most likely case. Um, it, your scenario of the father neglecting her is certainly possible. It makes sense, um, but in terms of scientific study or data, I'm not sure um, if that's a, an actual proven trend, even though it does make logical sense of that well that, I mean that what's would interesting
1: well, I've written about this what's interest not so much I, I mean what's interesting is, That because there are so many divorces in America, an increase in the number of divorces and an increase in the number of girls, teen girls, who, um, who, now, these families weren't divorced, but but the idea is when a father is either, the parents are divorced or the father isn't paying enough attention, maybe he's a workaholic or whatever, um, these girls become much more desperate for male attention, and that explains the sexting and all of that kind of thing. So, so just in, not, nothing to do with terrorism, just in general American teenage girls and even preteen girls are more vulnerable to um, falling in love or, or, or thinking, you know, a man paying them attention or a boy paying them attention and and, and the girls seeking this kind of attention through sexting and all kinds of other things. Um, that is a big vulnerability. Now, what's, what's really interesting is how now combine that ongoing thing, ongoing problem issue in society today in America, combine that with um, the plans of the terrorists to recruit people to come and become terrorists, whether, you know, homegrown terrorists, um, that's a real problem. Sure, and I think what
2: uh, Muslim parents do have a responsibility to do and all religious parents have a responsibility for this to some degree, but it, given what's going on in the world, I think the responsibility is, hard, is harder on Muslim parents, is that they have to inoculate their kids from the dangerous ideology, um, from fellow Muslims that have this different ideology, so that when they inevitably encounter it yes. online, a radical sermon, or they meet a, someone that they want to date that has radical ideas, that they don't buy into it. Yeah, uh, It's very important that they pass down a more modern interpretation of their faith that prevents acts of terrorism to their children. And if they don't, they're going to fall prey to it because it's all over the Internet. And statistically, what we're seeing is, is that the older generation of Muslims that came to the United States and came here for the American dream tend to be more moderate than the ones that are actually born here. The younger generation is more radical.
1: Mm-hmm. Because the younger generation is feeling less hopeful about their getting the American dream, about their having a life um, that, you know, that that will make them satisfied and happy and so on.
2: I I think that's a reasonable assumption. I think also if they have increased access to radical ideologies, but also it's personal experience. If you're a Muslim immigrant, why did you come to the U.S.? You had to obviously think positively of America. You probably experienced radical Islam in your homeland, and you wanted to get away from it. Mm. But if you're born here, you didn't experience mm. what this ideology is all about.
1: Yes, yes, that's true. Well, let's see. We're kind of, oh, my goodness. We're, we're sort of out of time. To tell people how they can find out more about the Clarion Project.
2: Sure, they can go to clarionproject.org, sign up for our weekly newsletter to get most of our best material, or check it every day to read everything we write.
1: And that's Clarion, C L A R I O N, ClarionProject.org. Well, Ryan Morrow, thank you so much for joining us. This has been very informative. Very, very much things that we need to become more and more aware of. Not just today, election day, but in general, this is going to be more of an issue, and and um, it can only be stopped if we if we acknowledge first of all that it's here. So thank you very much and thank you all for listening. You've been listening to Dr. Carol's Couch and I'm your psychiatrist host, Dr. Carol Lieberman.
0: Thank you for joining us on Dr. Carol's Couch. Join us next week at 1 p.m. Pacific time for another installment of Dr. Carol's Couch. We'll save you a seat.